1: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Property Voice podcast. My name is Richard Brown and as always, it's a pleasure to have you join me again on the show today. I recently had lunch with Anchor, a property friend of mine or property buddy of mine, and he's a real gent, but that's not exactly the point of today's share. However, fully demonstrating that Anchor is indeed a gent, he later dropped me a note of thanks for the time and information shared during our lunch meetup. He also included a link to an article on investment bias as a way of sharing information and adding further value to our relationship. So that was very kind of him. I'm aware of investment bias in general terms, but to be perfectly honest with you, I'm no expert on the topic. But what I can tell you is that I have learned over time that I did have a tendency to act in certain ways when it came to my investing decisions. Things have changed over time as well, particularly as I have learned that my natural tendencies were not always helpful. Today's episode, therefore, is aimed at opening up this discussion on investor personality and also invest investment decision bias, just a little bit. So let's get into that right now.
0: Okay, so let's get on with this week's featured topic with Property Chatter.
1: The original article uh, link that anchor shared with me was called These five cognitive biases hurt investors the most. And I've added a link to, the, to this uh, particular article in the show notes for you. However, within this article was another link to an infographic that t- contained no less than 188 different biases that can influence our investment decisions and behaviour. That's probably way too many to learn, let alone master. So today I plan to cover just 12 of the main investment biases that are are likely to be most common for us to experience as property investors. And in addition to these 12 biases, there are also four different investor personality types. And if we can understand our investor personality type preference, we're also more likely to understand some of the associated investment biases that we are likely to experience as well. So we shall start with the investor personality type now. The CFA Institute is a global organization that sets standards for investment professionals, including an accreditation program that addresses 21 of the approximate 188 investment biases that could exist. The CFA Institute also identified four different investor personality types from a range of research. Now these investor personalities are known as preservers, accumulators, followers, and independence, And let's take a quick look at these right now with full credit disclosure going to Investopedia, to, who, who assisted me with the explanations. And a, there's a link to, uh, to that uh, source article in the show notes as well. Well, starting with preservers. Preservers are investors who place a great deal of emphasis on financial security and on preserving wealth rather than taking risks to grow wealth. Preservers, uh, sorry, preservers, watch closely over their assets and are anxious about losses and short-term performance. Preservers also have trouble taking action for fear of making the wrong investment decisions. Accumulators are investors who are interested in accumulating wealth and are confident they can do so. Accumulators tend to want to steer the ship when it comes to making investment decisions. They are risk takers and typically believe that whatever path they choose is the correct one. Accumulators have frequently been successful in prior business endeavors and are confident that they will make uh, successful investors as well. Next up is followers. Followers are investors who tend to follow the lead of their friends and colleagues, a general investing fad, or indeed the status quo, rather than having their own ideas or making their own decisions about investing. Followers may lack interest and indeed or knowledge of the financial markets and their decision-making process may lack a long-term plan. Finally we have the independents. Independents are investors who have original ideas about investing and like to be involved in the investment process. Unlike followers they are very interested in the process of investing and are engaged in the financial markets. Many independents are analytical and critical thinkers and they trust themselves to make confident and informed decisions, but risk the pitfalls of only following their own research. You might already be able to identify with one of these four investor personality types, having just heard the brief description, description Rather there. And if you did, then here are some of the typical investment biases that could accompany these investor pro, uh, personality types. And this is by no means an exhaustive list, so it's just a bit of an insight right now. So with preservers... They tend to have a heavy focus on short-term results at the expense of mid- to long-term performance, and this could lead to some emotional, knee-jerk decisions, such as selling up in a crash out of fear, for example. Preservers can also be investment procrastinators. So if you're taking your time starting off or you fall into a blind panic if house price data shows a downward shift, then this could be you accumulators uh, for accumulators rather overconfidence is one of the biggest tendencies they they may become overconfident in their own ability to pick a winner and or market trends sometimes leading to getting caught out if the pattern is broken so if you feel that you're most likely to make the right investment decisions independently of others sometimes believing others who act differently could be wrong and also are likely to, be, to want to heavily, you know, to heavily control the investment process as an active investor, then this could be you. Hint, hint, it's a little bit like me. <laughs> Next we have followers. And for followers, the herd mentality is one of the biggest tendencies. Similar to the preserver, they can follow the masses or a big name into a position without always undertaking their own research and this is often what happens in the boom and bust cycle where followers compound the swings in a market for example. So if you see recent results which gives you either a sense of fear uh, or potential loss and want to sell or a sense of potential gain and want to buy or if you tend to think you will do what your family or the big market commentators are doing then this could be you. Independence are similar to the overconfidence issue for accumulators is a tendency to use confirmation bias in the case of independence. And this is where we zone into information and data that might support our original preconceived ideas rather than being open to all data sources. So if you adopt an investment view or position and then seem to find lots of data to support that view and less that contradicts it, or you tend to prefer to look at certain types of investment only, then this could be you. It does not automatically follow that these tendencies you know, that I've just outlined very briefly with these four different personality types will exist with each of those personality types. And in some cases, the tendency can indeed lead to a strength rather than a weakness, albeit under the right conditions. Personally, as I alluded to, I'm probably inclined to be an accumulator at heart. And that's my natural tendency. However, over time, I have added in elements of the independent and also the preserver personalities to help counter some of the potential flaws in the accumulator, sorry, accumulator personality alone. Okay, so that's the personality type. Now let's look at the tw- that 12 rather of the key investment biases that we are likely to encounter as property investors. While some of these might tend to accompany certain investor personality types, it could be the case that we possess some that might fall under other personality types or others that could arise irrespective of investor personality type as well so in other words don't get hung up on the personality type that was really just a a reference point if you like to give you a kind of a general tendency or direction but these biases, just listen for out for all of them and just see if you identify with, uh, with, with some or all of these. Well, maybe not all, some or many of these <laughs> rather. And as I say, there's 12 of them. So uh, bear with me as I rattle through the list. First up, and they're in the no particular order, first up is recency bias. And this is where recent events lead to a view that it will always be like this. And this is probably more common with, more common rather with new or younger investors. The highs of 2007 or the crash of 2008 could significantly sway your views if you suffer with this bias. The best way, therefore, to overcome this is to deliberately study long-term trends and events from credible sources to understand how, how, and why all markets change over time. The second one I wanted to cover is loss aversion bias. It's one of the biggest ones, probably, and this is the fear or loss or regret for an investment. It could also come in the form of buyer's remorse after we make an investment purchase. So being, feeling guilty about t- taking on some kind of investment or any kind of personal investment, could be training or that, that sort of thing. And this can be extremely emotional and so very hard to resist as it can literally grip the investor and stop them from acting. However, not acting also carries risks of loss For example, putting all your cash under the mattress could lead to underperforming returns or even total loss in extreme cases, especially if the mattress is stolen. (laughs) Alternatively, consider if the government seizes certain asset types or currency accounts, as happened in certain developing countries several times historically. The best way to overcome this, therefore, is to have a system of due diligence checks and investment rules to follow and allow the process to work rather than the emotions. Also spread your investment portfolio around a little to help dilute any potential losses which should help mitigate some of that fear at least. And by the way just a quick aside there's a book called Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway um, which if you suffer in this particular area you might want to read. The third one I wanted to raise now was the herd mentality. Now buy low and sell high as the saying goes. Is, um, is obviously something that we'd all like to do, but yet the markets, the, you know, the financial markets, the housing markets, they seem to behave almost in the opposite pattern, with people piling in at the top of the market and dumping assets at the bottom, uh, just because everybody else is. The best way to overcome this, therefore, is to do our own research, then resist reviewing our portfolio so frequently. If we limit major portfolio re- reviews to once a year, we can write out potentially 364 daily market updates and queues to act fast with, along with the herd. Of course, if we've got our own investment position and our own set of rules and we, we buy over the long period of time, that can also help here. The fourth one is optimism bias. Do you believe that you have above average intelligence? Are you a good driver? Are you a great lover? <laughs> Well, Most surveys seem to suggest that more people overestimate their capabilities when compared to the average performer. And if you tend to think you are above average in in many things, or some things, then you might just suffer from this overconfidence bias. After all, we can't all be above average, can we? And this suggests that our subjective assessment of our performance is often, often far greater than our objective results. So the best way to avoid this is to measure our investment results in a conventional way and then track the results over time. The numbers don't lie unless you fudge them obviously. So do you beat the market averages or not? Number five self-attribution bias and this is a tendency to take the credit for all the good results but then transfer the blame to outside events and people for all the bad ones. Results are rarely 100% down to only our own actions. Both good and bad results can also be influenced by timing, luck, regulation, trends, competition, economic factors, and so on. So a healthy dollop of self-modesty and uh, objective assessment over time can help to put things in their correct perspective here. number 6. Choice Paralysis And this is where the sheer level of options available can drive us into a state of analysis paralysis, as as the saying goes, such that we end up doing nothing at all. I recently wrote an article for Your Property Network magazine, which describes 40 different ways to profit through property. And picking the right one among 40 can be so overwhelming that we, we could end up delaying our investment altogether. The best way to overcome this, therefore, is to set a limit on the research phase. Focus on the top three to five investment strategies and then have a deadline for when we want to start investing, be that with or without having perfect information, which is probably going to be hard for all you perfectionists out there, but um, that's certainly a way to try and overcome that. Number seven, mental accounting, Uh, which kind of sounds like a a criticism of the accounting profession, but uh, it's not. But I've included this one as it could apply in certain situations, and this is where we attach different perceived value to certain sums of money depending on how it came about. To illustrate, income from employment might come with a higher perceived value than, say, income from a gift, an inheritance or some other windfall. And as a result, we might be less rigorous with money from one source than from another, depending on how, how we perceive the value. So the easiest way to overcome this is to have set investment criteria, no matter where the funds have come from, in order to neutralise this free money effect. Number eight, confirmation bias. And you'll hear this one mentioned quite a lot in, in the shorter lists uh, that could be covered here, along with loss aversion risk. they're too big. These are two big ones. But the best way to illustrate confirmation bias is if you recall when you decided to buy a certain car, new car, could be another big purchase, but suddenly you start, if it's a car, suddenly you start to see them everywhere and that's because you're now conscious of them and so you actively look for them. And the same tendency can happen with research data and other information collation. Trust me, if you only ever see uh, information fully supporting or alternatively fully undermining an investment case, then you may be suffering from this confirmation bias. The best fix is to force yourself to compile a list of both positive and negative sources of information in the first place. Everything has a balance, but then you can evaluate the list of pluses and minuses, hopefully a little more objectively. Number nine, the narrative fallacy. And this is where there's a tendency to listen to stories or the narrative rather than study hard data. And if you rely purely on the newspapers for your data sources then you could easily be falling victim of this particular bias. Independent data collation and analysis is harder and it also takes time. But it is also well worth doing. One way that I try to avoid this is by having a list of key economic, housing and financial data compiled every month and sent to me by my assistant. I look at the list every month and I try to make sense of what what it is telling me. Uh, and the trends, rather than all of the propaganda from some news corporation with an agenda to spin. Number 10, endowment bias. And this is almost the opposite of loss aversion bias, where we overvalue the assets or investments that we actually hold. And it come from, could come rather from over-familiarity or uh, a, local, a, d- a deep local level of knowledge, for example. We might have decided that a certain property, location or strategy is the best for us at some point, but is that still the case with the passage of time? The best way to fix this is to produce objective investment performance data and then track this over time. Couple this with our initial investment criteria and then, when we, then we can benchmark our current asset performance against a, an objective set of criteria that we set for ourselves some time before. And then we might, might actually then see our assets in a slightly different light as we're tracking them over time. And this is something I do, as I mentioned, on an annual basis. I look at all my investments and one or two sometimes stick out as maybe not performing as well as they might be. Number 11 is an illusion of control bias. And, and this was one quite familiar to me, in all honesty. It's, it's where we believe that it is better that we are in control of where our money is invested, believing that we will do better than the market average. The fact of the matter is that we cannot control entire markets, economic situations, government policy and regulation and such things. So it it can therefore lead to a kind of overconfidence. It's not overconfidence in itself, but it can lead to that kind of thinking. The best way to overcome this with property is by forcing the appreciation, ensuring that we invest with a positive cash flow and then diversifying our risk. Over time, we can diversify across properties, strategies, geographies and also other asset classes not just property and this at least helps to spread the risk of control bias around a little. By forcing the appreciation for example instead of trying to predict capital growth we do actually regain an element of genuine control as well. So if you're a bit of a control freak a little bit like me then look at forcing the appreciation rather than trying to guess the next market hotspot. That'll probably give you a bit of a kick there. The final one I wanted to mention is, um, it's not a specific one at all, it's called the bias blind spot. And this is quite simply the situation where we don't know what we don't know. We all have our biases, prejudices or tendencies, but we might not know what they are in the first place. And I have often said that uh, one of my top tips is to go and seek to plug your gaps. Of course, this starts by identifying what our gaps are in the first place. But if nothing else, covering the four investor personality types and the 12 out of some 188 investment biases should help on this level. Personally I found that getting an objective insight into our potential gaps can be extremely helpful. You can use this list of investment biases as a kind of checklist or get someone to help you identify your gaps instead you can just talk it through. And I've just undertaken a similar exercise with one of my mentees who was unable to fully identify their gaps, had a bit of a blind spot Uh, without, you know, sorry, before we started talking them through for an hour or so. But once identified, they're then aware of them and they can also plan to plug these gaps going forward. In all honesty, I find this kind of investment psychology or as they call it, behavioral finance insight fascinating. I only wish actually that uh, I better understood it when I was younger. I remember that uh, when I won a small packet at a casino, only to become overconfident and lose not only my initial gains, but also my initial stake, and some as well. This was many moons ago, uh, but it was a painful reminder of what can happen when you don't understand what your investment biases are. Since then, and in particular over the last five years or so, I've developed a range of techniques, simple systems and practices that help me to overcome my natural tendencies and biases. So I've outlined, if you like, a number of the biases uh, biases that can exist, and I've also given a few pointers to some of the things that you could do, uh, maybe to address those. But uh, to illustrate some of the things I've done, uh, for example, I've I've developed uh, preset investment criteria and a checklist scoring system for a particular property or strategy. I measure my portfolio performance, but only review this at key dates, not all the time, in other words. In addition, I follow and track hard data sources outside of my portfolio to keep an eye on the market. I now diversify my investments in several ways. I hold certain assets for long-term wealth, and others I know will be for shorter-term income plays. And I adopt a kind kind rather of pound-cost averaging, amongst other techniques. I talked last time about uh, some of the ways in which I try to de-risk my property investment portfolio. And today's topic builds on this to some extent. So what about you? Which of the four investment personality types do you most relate to? And more importantly, how many of the twelve investment decision biases did you find yourself nodding along to as I was going through them? So what I suggest you do is take a look at the show notes and uh, use these twelve investment biases as a kind of self-evaluation checklist and work out how you will adopt some rules, processes, or techniques of your own to help overcome these biases. And if you want any support on identifying your gaps, generally as a property investor, then drop me a line and perhaps we can have a chat about how best to do that. But I hope this has been helpful to you. But please also remember that this episode just literally scratches the surface of the topic. And I've referenced around seven separate article links that I use to help me to produce today's show. Uh, so make sure you check out the uh, resource links in, in today's show notes to see where else to go to understand more on this particular topic. And that's all really I wanted to cover off for now. It's, as I say, it's a top-level uh, insight into the theme and there's lots you could uh, read up around the whole topic of uh, investment bias and that kind of thing. But I suggest you go away and do that. Meanwhile, and as usual, you can email me, podcast at thepropertyvoice.net if you want to talk about anything from today's show or indeed more generally in property investing. And, of course, the show notes will be over at the website, thepropertyvoice.net, as well as usual. But for now, all I want to say is thank you very much for listening again uh, this week. And until next time on the Property uh, Property Voice podcast, it's ciao,
0: ciao